Welcome to the First Take podcast with Virginia Lee, Michael Flanagan and myself, Simon King. On this week's episode, we get a first glimpse at vaccine effectiveness against Omicron. We look ahead to the weekend's ASH meeting and discuss the new Chinese national drug reimbursement list. Please like, subscribe and thanks for listening. So, Michael, the question that the or the most people in the world are asking at the moment, where do things stand with the Omicron variant and how prepared are we for it in terms of vaccines, et cetera? Yeah. So, you know, information and by information, mostly just speculation has been coming out, you know, in, in small sort of drips and drabs ever since Omicron was identified in South America last month. Um, and obviously the world has been anxiously waiting for some definitive evidence, um, you know, about whether the, the spike protein mutations, which are basically what uh, everybody's worried about, whether they're going to allow the, you know, the virus to evade pharmaceutical interventions, notably vaccines, that sort of thing. And so the first solid data, uh, began trickling out this week and the news is seemingly pretty encouraging. So, you know, neutralizing antibody titers achieved with two doses of Comirnaty, which is the vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech, are, you know, they are notably lower against Omicron. The data uh, companies just released this week suggests that there is roughly a 25-fold reduction relative to, you know, the original Wuhan strain of the virus. So, you know, that headline is a little scary, perhaps, but, you know, there's a couple things that go along with that. Number one, that still leaves plenty of room for some protection, especially from the severe, the more severe manifestations of COVID-19, notably hospitalization and death, um, with that two-dose vaccine. And perhaps more interestingly, or more importantly, uh, the data also suggests that a third, you know, aka booster dose of Comirnaty appears to be pretty much effective enough to neutralize the Omicron virus variant. So, you know, all this needs to be taken with, you know, some grains of salt because, you know, these studies are being done very quickly in laboratories, you know, using pseudoviruses, not necessarily the real thing. Um, so it, this is not real world data and we don't have anything, you know, locked down for sure, but it does seem to suggest that preliminary evidence is, you know, saying that the uh, that we're not in a bad place um you know more vaccines are good and perhaps boosters are inevitable but you know it seems like cautious optimism is the word of the day for the moment and what do we think that that means from the perspective of drug makers yeah so in a sense it it seems kind of like a best case scenario you don't really want to say that Sounds weird to say it that way, but it does seem sort of like a best case scenario because, you know, the sky's not falling, humanity's not going to go extinct, uh, Omicron is not going to, you know, tear a hole in the uh, space-time continuum or anything like that, but it is serious, and it does mean that additional doses, especially the mRNA vaccines, look to be a likelihood. So, you know, 
Pfizer is uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. Obviously, they're they're selling billions and billions of doses already, and same thing with Moderna. And they're working on you know optimized versions that focus on these variants of concern. That'll be coming. You know, data for those will be coming out in the next few months, I believe. Um, but you know, Pfizer's CSO Michael Dolstein actually sort of he responded to some you know questions from the media, and he basically outlined what the companies are thinking at the moment, and he sees a three-dose vaccine regimen as basically a stopgap against Omicron that will you know basically get us through the winter until the variant-specific jabs um, will be ready. And that's just assuming that the, you know, the clinical data come out as positive as they have for, for the other versions. Um, and he acknowledged that, you know, basically COVID-19 boosters are here to, are here to stay. Um, and more doses of Comirnaty will likely be needed in the spring or fall of next year. So, you know, you got to take this also with a grain of salt because, you know, he's got skin in the game. Pfizer has a lot of skin in the game. But um, it seems like we're in an okay place. I don't think, you know, um, Pfizer and Moderna and BioNTech are going to be uh, cheersing about the news, but it does seem like the vaccines work. So I think the news could be a lot more discouraging than it is. This weekend is the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. Simon, what are the things to watch for there? So I think the headline data um, is probably going to be results from Roche's Polaric study, which is evaluating its antibody drug conjugate Polar-V in first-line diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And the abstract shows that a, a new treatment regimen with Polar-V included improved progression-free survival by 27% over the current standard of care in the first-line setting. But, you know, notably that study has yet to show an overall survival benefit. And I, I think you know, what's going to be notable is that there's a genuine interest to see um, what the reaction is to the more detailed data at ASH, as there seems to have been a real sort of divergence of opinion, certainly from the financial community since the abstract was published some weeks ago. Some analysts have, have called um, the Polaric study practice changing and others have actually sort of said that the data are somewhat disappointing. I think obviously the reaction of discussants at ASH is going to be important and, you know, hopefully we'll be talking to some key opinion leaders next week. Something we did do was we ran a snap poll of oncologists and, and hematologists last week. And I think one of the important takeaways from that was that they don't seem to be um, hugely concerned around uh, toxicity with the, the Polyvi based regimen in the first line setting. So whilst I think it's maybe premature to call this data practice changing, the feedback that we got was that most oncologists would still probably choose to prioritise its use if, if the regimen's approved. And I think obviously that speaks in part to you know, what is a clear progression-free survival benefit and probably the fact that this is the first positive phase three study in what we can describe as a curative setting for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma for the best part of 20 years. In terms of other big ticket things to watch at ASH, I think CAR-T is going to take a lot of focus, as it has done at the meeting for the last you know, six, seven years. We're going to get positive data from two studies looking at um, anti-CD19 CAR-T 
treatments in second line lymphoma. Um, that's data from BMS and Gilead. And not only are we going to get the opportunity to compare those results against each other, but also against some negative data from a, uh, a failed study in the same setting for Novartis's Kim Raya. So I think as well as the comparisons that are going to be made, there's going to be a lot of discussion as to whether that data is going to drive a, a meaningful shift to earlier line use. And one of the other things I'm kind of looking forward to is seeing um, some results from a survey that Cardinal Health have run, which is looking at barriers to CAR-T use that are faced by community oncologists in the US. And I spoke to the author of that study earlier this week, and one of the, the key takeaways for me was him saying that he feels that um, CAR-T manufacturers actually need to do more to educate um, and support community oncologists who obviously don't necessarily use CAR-T themselves, but do make a lot of referrals. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be really interesting to watch. And on the subject of CAR-T, Novartis are going to be presenting some early results from, from their new CAR-T platform, which is called T-Charge, which is focused on shorter vein-to-vein -vein times, which they think could lead to improved efficacy and improved safety um, and could be a real game changer. And one of the things that came out in that Cardinal Health survey as well is you know, the time that it takes to um, to initiate CAR-T treatment and then actually have the patient treated. Lots of patients during that period, uh, their condition deteriorates and they're no longer, you know, CAR-T therapy is no longer suitable. So I think that's going to be really early stage stuff, but it's, it's going to be interesting and presumably um, sort of a direction that other players in the sector take over time as well. And the last thing I'd say... Um, or one of the last things I'd say is by specifics. Again, like CAR-T, have been a hot topic for the last few years. I think we're going to see uh, some particularly interesting data in multiple myeloma where Regeneron and Janssen are going to be presenting notable updates. And I think the other thing that's going to be quite interesting is phase three data for Sanofi and Alnilam's uh, Fitusiran in haemophilia A and B. It's actually being um, discussed in a couple of presidential um, symposiums, I believe. It's in haemophilia A and B. And, you know, the, the efficacy of this drug is not really an issue, but safety is. And actually, Sanofi just announced a couple of weeks ago that they're now studying a lower dose and it's pushed back, you know, potential regulatory filings for a couple of years. So it's interesting that that data has been given such a prominent position. And it's going to be interesting to see, I think, how oncologists sort of get a handle on, on how it could potentially be used. We spoke to one expert last week and he feels it's going to be um, a niche therapy. And that's partly due to you know, what he describes as the, the ongoing success of uh, Roche's Hemlibra for haemophilia A. So potentially a role for, for Fitusiran in Haemophilia B, but I think the data that we'll see this weekend will give us a much clearer idea. China's National Healthcare Security Administration published its updated National Drug Reimbursement List, which outlines which drugs will be reimbursed by public insurance. This year, 67 novel therapies were added to the list and saw an average cut of nearly 62% from their list prices. So, Virginia, what were some of the standout therapies added to this year's NRDL? 
Yeah, so this year's NRDL added new indications for several domestic checkpoint inhibitors, and, and that continues a trend that we've been seeing for the last couple of years now. So PD-1 inhibitors from Beijing, from Innovent and their partner Lily, Eli Lilly, and from Junshi each added multiple new indications, while we saw that competing checkpoints from multinational companies like Merck's Keytruda, Bristol-Myers Devo, et cetera, were, were notably excluded. So it's, it's very difficult for multinationals to negotiate the same level of discounts as their domestic counterparts, given how they've priced these drugs in the rest of the world. And I'll be very curious to see how this pricing competition plays out in the U.S. as well, once these PD-1s and PD-L1s make their way to the U.S. market. Um, we should also note that the PD-1 and PD-L1 landscape is getting more and more crowded in China with more competition from domestic players and broader NRDL coverage for the front runners could really cement their market share for, for many years to come and make it more difficult for domestic developers to recruit for their checkpoint studies and to make headway commercially. And then I just I wanted to mention some of the other Notable additions for multinationals. Um, we saw Eli Lilly's TALTS for psoriasis get added. Uh, Johnson & Johnson had Darzalix for multiple myeloma. And then we also saw Biogen's SMA therapy, Spinraza, get added to the list. Okay, so beyond the inclusions on the list, you know, the drugs that were S excluded can be as telling. Um, and this year, China saw its first CAR-T therapies approved, Yescarda from Fosun and Gilead, and Relmacel from JW Therapeutics, but these did not make the NRDL. Uh, what are the implications of that? So inclusion on the NRDL is really key to gaining market access in China, and companies are typically negotiating really steep discounts on their drugs under the assumption that those discounts will be offset by increased uptake. So, so like we said before, we saw the drugs added this year have a cut of nearly 62% on average. Um, but despite the curative potential of the approved CAR-Ts, the, the NH, NH, NHSA has stated that it's capped the annual cost of drugs on the list at about 50,000 US dollars a year, and it couldn't afford to reimburse the CAR-Ts, which are listed at about $200,000 annually in China. So this means that Chinese patients seeking CAR-T therapies will have to pay out of pocket or through private insurance for the foreseeable future, and that's really going to hinder uptake. Um, in the long run, there are a number of companies in China and globally working on technology platforms to reduce manufacturing timelines and reduce the cost of creating CAR-Ts, but that is going to take years to play out, and it seems like this first generation of CAR-Ts is going to have a tough time ramping up on the market.